This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you'll hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Destinations International, where registration for this year's annual convention is now open. Join other destination marketers from around the world in Dallas for an amazing week of learning, networking, and camaraderie, July 18, 19, and 20. Go to destinationsinternational.org to learn more, see the agenda, and reserve your spot. And now it's on to our show. Kara Franker is an executive in the tourism industry, a lawyer, and a professional writer. She is currently the chief executive officer of Visit Estes Park a destination marketing and management organization located at the gateway to the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Formerly the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Visit Lauderdale, Kara managed a $10 million marketing budget in South Florida. An advocate for leadership in the tourism industry, she has served on the board of the U.S. Travel Association as well as several committees for Destinations International, including the Global Leadership Committee, and she sits on the advisory boards for Simple View and the E-Tourism Summit. Previously, Kara was the founder of her own tourism marketing and communications firm, which provided strategy, team management, client promotion, writing research, on-air talent, video production, and content creation services to destinations across the state of Florida. Her biggest clients included Visit Florida and the Greater Miami CVB. A seasoned professional journalist, Kara has been featured as a travel expert in Condé Nast Traveler, Travel and Leisure, The Travel Channel, Travelocity, Southern Living, Coastal Living, Orbits, HDTV, Huffington Post, and more. And additionally, she has served as the editor-in-chief of several luxury lifestyle print magazines in the Palm Beach, Aspen, and Miami markets for the award-winning Modern Luxury Network of Publications. Kara earned a Juris Doctor from the University of Denver and started her career as a criminal prosecutor in Miami. She obtained her Bachelor of Science in Journalism and Strategic Communications from the University of Kansas. Kara Franker, welcome to DMOU. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. So it came across, uh, I don't know, either one of my social media feeds or email somewhere today, this morning, uh, it came across that you are going to be the co-host of the upcoming e-tourism summit, uh, along with uh, our friend Dominic Bravo. And so I, I got to ask before we get to our three questions, and sadly, uh, that event happens next week as we are recording this, so it will be in the past when this episode actually drops, but tell me how that all came together. How do you and Dominic become co-hosts of the e-tourism summit coming up? Well, I'll tell you what, it was kind of a crazy way that it all came together. I was there last year as a panelist and it was in one of those, you know, afternoon sessions where people might be getting a little bit tired and I blame Matt Steiker. He set me up. So he said (laughs) something about how he heard I could rap which is true. I can rap. I can rap one song. (laughs) It's a 90s classic. So out of nowhere, I stood up and did an impromptu version of Coolio's Gangster's Paradise. Love it. Which had the whole house kind of like, we're like, what just happened? They, They were pretty excited about it. And it kind of infused a little bit of extra energy. They weren't expecting that. So then come to find out, uh, apparently that made an impression on the e-tourism organizers. And so they asked me if I could co-host 
And I said, as long as you bring in a really great co-host, I'm a one hit wonder. So I need somebody who can be on that stage. And anybody who knows Dominic, he's such a funny, great guy. Yeah, great guy. So I feel like the two of us are going to have a blast. Yeah, it should be fun. I wish I was going to be there. And I uh, can't wait to hear the uh, the fallout or the backstory when it's all over and, and see what happens there. So anyway, thank you for coming on the show. Something happened over the past couple of months that I was just, as a former event producer, as part of a DMO, my first DMO in Kankakee County, Illinois, uh, we were an event bureau because there was not a lot going on in that destination. And we had to create a reason for people to come to Kankakee County. So from a standpoint of somebody who has done this before, what you pulled off was just amazing. So 20 years ago, the tiny town of Nederland launched a spring festival based loosely around the primary claim to fame that this community has as being the home of a cryogenically frozen man. <laughs> they called it the Frozen Dead Guy Days. And the first festival featured coffin races, a frozen salmon toss, and a dance called Grandpa's Blue Ball. <laughs> Love that. Over the next two decades, the festival completely outgrew the town, and organizers pulled the plug late last year. But Visit Estes Park saw opportunity. So, Kara, first question. Tell us the story of how your community executed a major music festival in under 100 days. It was the craziest roller coaster of my <laughs> career, let me tell you that. And the fact that it revolves around a dead guy who's frozen in a tough shed in the town of Nederland, you just you can't make something like that up. Right. So I want you to picture this town, high, high elevation in the Rocky Mountains. There's no hotels there. So when tens of thousands of people would descend on this town to celebrate the frozen dead guy, it was a lot. So it's not a knock on Nederland that the festival outgrew it. Plenty of festivals have outgrown their original locations. Right. But when it was canceled, we had been searching. So to give you a feel for Estes Park, gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park, absolutely gorgeous place in Colorado, but high season is summer. So we desperately need help. In the wintertime, there's great activity snowshoeing, but there's not a ski resort. So anything we could do, like your experience of creating a reason to come in the off season was a really big deal and well worth the effort. So there's a legendary gentleman in town who owns the Stanley Hotel. His name is John Cullen. And the Stanley is famous because that's where Stephen King was inspired to write The Shining. Yeah. And I'll bring that piece back into all of this because it's all kind of the weird underworld, right? And so I heard rumors that John was in talks with the festival organizers to buy it, but he wasn't sure how he was going to execute it. And he wanted to host the blue ball at the Stanley, but he really wanted it to be an event that helped support the town. So I contacted him and I said, look, whatever you want to do, you know that Visit Estes Park is behind this 100%. You let me know what you need and let's do this. And so by that time, this was probably, oh my goodness, like around just after Thanksgiving, we were on the phone every day kind of crafting this takeover. And there were so many pieces to put in place. There was money that had to change hands. And then of course, there's building this festival in Estes Park and then convincing everybody that this was a great idea. We had boards to convince, we had town officials to convince. 
And it was like this kind of executioner style hit list of all of the things that had to get done. And my one big thing with him was let me hire the people that I know that can make this happen. And it just happened to be a group of folks that I had worked on a big beach festival in Fort Lauderdale, which was my former stomping grounds. And I said, John, as long as you let me bring in the people, visit us this park, we can do this. We can pull this off in less than 100 days. And he was basically like, let's do it. And somehow we pulled it off. And so much more went into it. But you told me during our our pre-conference call that it really came down to having professional talent come in and actually put an event on, people who are experienced in doing this. And in so many cases, I think we attempt to do it ourselves because we know the players in town. We think we have a pretty good sense of how to work with city council and zoning and public works and and make all this stuff happen. But in the end, if you're going to be putting together a music festival, it takes a lot more than just knowing you know, where all the players live and, how, and what they think about in your community, right? Uh, 100%. I mean, we are talking about brand name bands, contacts that you have to have somebody in the industry know who to pick up the phone and call somebody or they know their routes for traveling. Right. So these bands travel all over. And if they're already going to be nearby, that's how you snag them in. I mean, there's an entire strategy, as you know, when you're dealing with music festivals that has to be executed in a way that is precision. And then we did something where we took our events complex and completely transformed it from like when you walk in, it doesn't look like the place where rodeo happens every year. Mm -hmm. It looks like this giant skull with these wraparound horns like coming down out of the ceiling. And there was this two-story high white blow-up man. And we superimposed Grandpa Bredo, that's the dead guy, his face (laughs) into this piece of art. And then like four different stages. I mean, we had a whole coffin race, you know, like area where not only were they staging, but they were going through kind of this muddy, snowy obstacle course. I mean, we had legit security. We had food vendors and drink vendors and we had games and all of that doesn't happen just with Visit Estes Park. We could definitely do that piece that you talked about of bringing all of the people in that needed to know about it, the county, the town, you know, working with the different officials. I have an incredible marketing team. We have the best PR firm, Turner PR. So all of the promotion piece of it, all of the marketing, bringing in the stakeholders. The other thing we couldn't risk was this just being something that benefited the Stanley Hotel. Because even though John Cullen was the mastermind that brought this together, this needed to be something that was a boost for everybody. So we had to bring in as many, we had more, I think more than 60 different small and local businesses that joined in, whether it was certain deals that they were giving away or showing up and like judging different contests. I mean, it wasn't all hands on deck, but to your point, the whole actual execution of the festival you have to have the professionals do that to be able to pull it off. Yeah, and to be able to, in 100 days, get 60 local independent businesses to say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, when I'm sure the skeptics were all around you saying, there's no way you can pull this off in three months. It's just not going to happen. Oh, for sure. And yet 60 businesses step in. And 
to get a little risque here, the town in Nederland, that crowd was known for being a party crowd. Mm -hmm. And our town of Estes Park has a lot of conservative residents, very family oriented. So there were residents who voiced their concerns. They were afraid that these weed smoking, alcohol, party driven crowd was going to come over and take over the town. And that's not what happened. We had a very awesome vibe through our crowd. And it was a lot of the Netherland folks came in too. But the Netherland folks were, of course, they were some naysayers as well. That's hard for them. Yeah. Like the way that's, that one of them described it to me, I thought was really good. She's like, it's like when you get a divorce and then the spouse invites you to the wedding and you're kind of like, you don't really want to be happy with them for them even if you go. It's like too soon. Right. But we once we executed it, there were even Netherland residents who were like, oh, wow, this was next level. This was the right fit for this. Some people will never please, but yeah. that's just part of the game. But it's interesting, though, that you say that the Netherland people came over and weren't high as a kite and disruptive and party on Garth to the detriment of the Estes Park vibe. Oh, no. That they actually came and were very respectful. And so you almost wonder if that vibe or that type of consumer that was the typical dead guy festival uh, attendee may have come from out of the area and saw it as their license to act out. Yes. And yet the people of the town come to their neighboring community uh, with respect. And that's exactly what we all want. That's exactly right. And what about the dead guy? Here, This is the part I got to throw in there. The dead guy. There's an entire negotiation happening. This has been in the press. This has been in the Wall Street Journal. Crazy. These little Colorado towns were on the cover of, or the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Like, that's how crazy this thing is. <laughs> but it's because of the dead guy. So that family is in the process of negotiating, moving the body from Nederland to the Stanley Hotel. And think about that whole haunted vibe, because we've got Stephen King and The Shining and the ghost yeah. tours. And then you add another cryogenically frozen body to the mix. I mean, does it get any more weird than that? Yeah. Which we embrace it. It's interesting. Yeah, it's not going to be keep Austin weird. It's going to be keep Estes Park weird, right? Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, so here you are. It's Sunday night of the festival. You sit back, take a deep breath, and you realize that you absolutely killed it. Later that week, you get your first numbers, and you made money. And part of the vision that you and John had was that this event would not only be an iconic addition to the destination, but that you could actually invest the profits into workforce and childcare. So tell us how those goals helped you build a winning collaboration in a somewhat skeptical town. First of all, nobody thought that we would be profitable in a first year festival. Because right. even though the branding was there, this is a first year festival when it comes to execution. And we all did it going in that, okay, we fill the town, hopefully, but if we don't make any money off of this, like we're going to keep building it up for next year. But from the very beginning, it was clear across every line of communication that this was not something that Visit Estes Park was trying to make money off of. And even though John Cullen owns the right to the festival, his goal is to fill his hotel and the other hotels, not to just line his pockets with more money. And everybody knew that going in. 
And so workforce housing and childcare is a huge issue in this mountain town. Think about it because of the fact that there's a limited amount of land, the cost of living has skyrocketed just like it has in so many towns across the Mm -hmm. country. We just yeah. went through a rugged ballot initiative after the state of Colorado broke open the tourism marketing statute and everybody across the state has been fighting to protect their dollars. So we had just gotten through that fight. And not only did we protect our dollars, but we got our voters to approve a percentage point increase by 2.5%. And we were earmarking all of that for workforce housing and childcare. So People knew that we were serious about that piece of it, but now knowing that we can also host successful events and then the profits go towards the same cause, all of a sudden, Visit Estes Park isn't just this heads and beds organization. Mm -hmm. We're really focusing on the community and how we make it a better place for people to live, work, and play. Very, very cool. As I said in the last question, there was a time not too long ago that even John and the town in general were pretty skeptical. Indeed, some years actually bordering on hostile towards the DMO. And you knew that the Estes Park CVB had a reputation in DMO circles as somewhat of a dumpster fire, and yet you left a great gig in Fort Lauderdale to take on this challenge. What did you see in the organization and that community that caused you to take the challenge? And maybe more importantly, how have you succeeded where so many before you have struggled to make Visit Estes Park the kind of organization that you can now be very proud of and your community is exceptionally proud of and supportive of? Well, first of all, there has been so many things that have happened in the past in that town that, you know, it was a difficult situation for sure for previous leaders. And I would never want to throw any of them under the bus because who knows, like me 10 years ago, what I would have done, you know, Mm -hmm. the timing. And I think I'm just lucky, really. And the fact that I love that town so much. I grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City and we would go into Rocky Mountain National Park and Estes Park and Grand Lake all the time. It's a special place to me. Mm -hmm. And then even currently now, my family, which was one of the big draws, they live within an hour of Estes Park. So I saw it as opportunity. I read lots of local newspaper articles about the turmoil, but I am an optimist. I also probably have way too much confidence (laughs) because I thought if I could just get in there and use my lawyer skills and do some negotiating and really collaborate with people. Let's see what we could do together. Now, I will be completely transparent with you that I didn't know it was in a state of as much turmoil as it was. I didn't know that the county was as close as they were to pulling the plug until I was already there and had started. But then it's just all hands on deck, failure not an option because Not only, I mean, selfishly, of course, my career at stake, I have to make this work, but also the community and their biggest economic driver is at stake. They can't continue to be in a state of turmoil. And I liken it to, I'll give you an example. When I was leading the marketing for Visit Lauderdale, we were doing a major rebrand. 
Um, we went from being the Greater Fort Lauderdale Convention and Visitors Bureau to Visit Lauderdale, and then all of the things that follow with that. And as I was leading that, I would lead our marketing advisory committee meetings. And I would go in and show the new logo and the new palette colors. And I remember in particular, there was a gentleman on that committee who just did not like the color of yellow that we had picked. And in, that is the moment that I give as an example to people of you can either be so offended and you can come up with all of the reasons why your color yellow was perfect for this and how you did a, a focus group on it and how you used to be the interior design editor-in-chief of a magazine and all of these things, but it, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. Because the second that you dig in and you don't bring that person along, it creates just that turmoil that spirals out of control. And so that was a turning point, I think, in my own leadership development where in that moment, I was like, you know what? You're right. We can do better on this yellow. Let me go back, get some options, bring it back to you, and you tell us what you think. And then that's the second piece is the execution. You don't just pay lip service to people. You actually follow through. So at the next meeting, we had a new yellow. He had seen it. He liked it. And then the big thing was that he felt like he was a part of something bigger. He was involved in the brand architecture. Yeah. And that to me is like the foundation for all of my leadership strategy and approaches. How do you get people who have been upset and they've been fighting? And it, what if my pride can just go out the window? And what if it's bringing somebody along and making them feel like they're a part of something? And that is the example of every conversation I've had in Visit Estes Park's tenure. I'll give you another example. There was a gentleman who runs an incredible short-term rental community. I mean, really gorgeous homes. And he was very disappointed. And he's got great marketing skills and a great marketing background. And he's an impressive guy. And he was very disappointed with things that had happened in the past. And I, I heard an earful about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And once I said to him, okay, tell me these things. Let me dive into this deeper. And let me break open what we're doing right now to see if we can fix different pieces. And then I took his advice and I did it. And I went back to him. Now he's on my board. Okay. And he's a huge champion for the community and for Visit Estes Park. And I think it's just that willingness to be like, okay, whatever you say doesn't have to be the gospel. Don't shove it down people's throats. How can you make it so that people feel like they're a part of it, but not just pay lip service, really execute and take back the things that they say, show them that, and then they become an evangelist. Absolutely. And I, you know, so many times we witness a really accomplished DMO professional go into a CEO role. And they have been hired for a reason, and that is to shake things up, make things happen. And so they do that by essentially coming in saying, new sheriff in town, I've got all these great ideas and we're going to start to implement. And they do it before they fully ingrain themselves into the community yeah. and have the conversations that you had. I think that, that your instinct going into Estes Park was absolutely correct. And you say your lawyering background uh, served you well. But I think for all of us, it's, you know, just ask what's working, what's not working. Let me, let me help you. And I think back to that classic Tom Cruise line from Jerry Maguire, help me help you. That's why I'm here. Right? Yes, that's and, perfect. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's why we're there. We're not there to prove that we're the smartest marketer on the planet. We're there to move the community forward. And I think having those conversations, you know, it was funny. Uh, we have, I had a similar situation when I started in Madison, the mayor at the time was not a big fan of our organization. Uh, he had threatened, I, you know, and this was also, I didn't know this going in, the board didn't bother to tell me. Uh, but the uh, he had threatened to cut the contract with the organization a year prior because he and the previous director really didn't get along at all. Wow. And so I tried really hard to get an audience with him, and he just refused to see me until finally I found a way into his office one day. And he comes in, and he sees me, and he kind of rolls his eyes, and he goes, what do you want? Because <laughs> he knew I'd been trying to get in, you know, in to see him, and he was blocking me. And his his assistant actually took a shine to me and she, she got me in there one day, but it was the most fortuitous thing that ever happened. He says, what do you want? And I didn't have this plan because I didn't expect that statement to come out of his mouth or that question to come out of his mouth. And I said, it's not what I want, sir. It's what you want. What do you mean? He barked at me. I said, I said, well, it's your bureau. He goes, no, it's not. I said, you're the number one investor. So yeah, it is. And I want to know what you want me to do. I'm waiting. I said, can I come back next week after you've had time to think about it and we can talk? And it started an amazing relationship that culminated, honestly, in us being able to build the Frank Lloyd Wright Convention Center that Madison enjoys today. It's not just that I got on the same page with the mayor, but the mayor began to realize the importance of the visitor economy and began to trust us that we had the communities back. And so I, I'm, I'm with you 100% and anybody listening who aspires to that first CEO position is make sure you dive into the community as deep as you can and find out what everybody's thinking before you come out with your great ideas. That's so good. And you know what? For the up and comers, because that's I, this was my first CEO job, you know, you might have to go into a tougher spot yeah. because the cush CEO jobs are all going to those that have like the resume that backs it up. Yeah, right. Those have already done. So it. you might have to go yeah. start. Right. That you might have to prove yourself trial by fire to get in there. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And that's where I'll tell you, I think it was Craig at Visit Dallas. That's where I first learned about your destination leadership book through the mm -hmm. CDME program mm -hmm. that Destination International puts on. And the timing for all of that was so clutch for me. Because I was doing trial by fire, but at the same time, I read your book through twice. I finished my CDME. I, I did the CDME as fast as you could do it because I had to. Like I was desperate for the information to be able to learn from that. And then giants in the industry like Bill Hanbury, because I, I met him as a, he was working as a consultant and working with Visit Lauderdale. And I would just like suck the information out of his brain. <laughs> I would watch yeah. him work that political sphere with such mastery in his skill set. And then I would file that all away. So it's like I had all of these different pieces, but then I had to go prove myself trial by fire in this destination. But it's if it wasn't for the resources that this industry has, I think it would have been a lot harder to have the success that I've had. Well, thank you for the kind words about the book, but you're also uh, being uh, tutored by Craig Davis is also something that, I mean, here's a guy who goes into, you know, a major market destination where that organization was absolutely 
on the brink of losing their contract. He leaves an amazing job in Pittsburgh where he's got it going on and takes the chance in Dallas because he is confident enough of his own ability to listen. And that's what his first three, four, five months was, listening and then saying, let me fix it. And he did. And now they're building a brand new convention center. And you know everything is on the up in Dallas. And Craig Davis is a big part of that reason. And he has this incredible chart that he showed us in the leadership class that he teaches. And I, I was like, please, can I steal this from you? Can I use this? And he was like, absolutely. And so I took his chart and it's basically like every different little milestone. I mean, you can get as granular as you want to across whatever, every single detail of destination leadership that you come up with, you know, from the finance to the marketing, to the sales and everything in between. And I, he, of course, that's a bigger destination. I converted it for Estes Park and it has been like a guidebook of, okay, here's how I track my progress. And then also I can show it to my board so that they see that we're making progress and I'm using this chart and it's all because of Craig. Yeah, very cool. All right, it's time to your bonus round question. So part of our job in destination marketing is to be a cheerleader for our communities. And I am sure there are a few DMO CEOs out there who were actually cheerleaders in high school and college but I'm pretty sure none of them went pro, except for you. So take us back to being a professional NFL cheerleader. It was a really long time ago. Um, <laughs> so imagine Kansas City Chiefs, Dante Hall, running back, those incredible runs. I was very young. So I was going to the University of Kansas but spending so much of my time at Arrowhead Stadium um, because that is it's it's like a full time job. I mean, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. It broke open incredible opportunities. It was some of my first kind of public speaking training. But then, of course, you're having a great time. You show up on Sunday and Arrowhead Stadium is famous for how loud it gets. Yeah. Right. And they just happen to be the reigning Super Bowl champions. But during that time, we did, I believe it was my 21st birthday. It was my second season or third season with the Chiefs. We had a January playoff game at home at Arrowhead Stadium against the Indianapolis Colts and the formidable Peyton Manning. And we had all of these plans. Not only were we going to win this game, but we were going out for my birthday. Like seriously going out 21 and we win. Except for we didn't. <laughs> we lost. <laughs> <laughs> we lost so badly. And the only person that went out with me was my then boyfriend, now husband. <laughs> The rest of the cheerleaders were so heartbroken and I don't, I don't blame them to this day, but my 21st birthday was kind of sad because of the fact that we had lost. Oh, no. I made up for it when Miami hosted the Super Bowl, South Florida hosted the Super Bowl a few years ago, and it was the Kansas City Chiefs versus the San Francisco team. And we won. And I was at the game hosting media from Visit Lauderdale. So I at least got to make up for it many years later. Oh, cool. But it was an incredible yeah. experience. I mean, and speaking of Bill Hanbury, did you know he used to be an NFL 
player. He's a former professional yeah, player. Buffalo Bills. Yes. Yeah. He blocked for OJ Simpson. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. He's the only other one that I know. I'm sure there's got to be somebody else that's participated in the NFL. In some way, shape, or form, I'm sure. But uh, I don't know. Kansas City Chief Cheerleader. That's, that's a resume uh, highlight right there. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. I'll bet it was. Hey, Kara, congratulations on pulling off the impossible with the frozen dead guy days and everything else you do for Estes Park, the state of Colorado, and for our industry. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers this is where the best and the brightest come to tell their stories. It's DMOU.com. And thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Destinations International, where registration for this year's annual convention is now open. Join your peers in the destination marketing sphere from around the world in Dallas for an amazing week of learning, networking, and camaraderie, July 18th through 20th. Go to destinationsinternational.org to learn more and reserve your spot. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z News, position papers on board diversity and a new model for destination development, the book Destination Leadership, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, plus access to past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.